Hello, and welcome to Eyewitness Beauty, the podcast where we talk about the biggest stories in the beauty industry each week. I'm Nick Axelrod-Welk. And I'm Annie Kriegbaum. I feel like collectively, everyone took the biggest exhale. We've been waiting to exhale, and we did yesterday, which was Inauguration Day. Annie, how do you feel? Oh, man. I've been waiting for this moment since I got the news that Trump won the election. Do you remember where you were? Today's January 21st when we're recording. Today feels like the first day of 2021. This feels like New Year's Day. Yesterday was like New Year's Eve and like today's New Year's Day. Uh, Yeah, maybe for some people. My husband just recovered from COVID. I think my mother gets her vaccine tomorrow. My dad got his last Friday. Our baby is being born in five weeks, which is insane. And I feel like things are finally, it looks like there's an end in sight. I feel hopeful today. Oh, I'm glad. Can I also tell you one other thing? Mm, (laughs) This is not an ad. Not that we get ads, but this is not one. I hired this woman named Kendra, who has a company called Organized by Hand. She's a home organizer. And for the last two days, she has been going through my entire house. And it is life-changing. Casey, who like you know well, but for the readers, is like not a particularly spiritual woo-woo kind of guy, said that the experience was quote-unquote spiritual. (laughs) This purging of stuff and sort of being told uh, that it's okay to like get rid of these things that we hold on to. You know, you're like matchbooks and, you know, like old, I have so many old keys and I don't know what the keys are for and they're Medco keys. And I'm like, this is the only one of this key. Like if I ever need to get through this door ever again in my entire life, I can't if I throw this key out. So I've kept this key for God knows how many years. That's not the key to your storage space where you're going to let me have that couch, (laughs) is it? (laughs) I mean, I really hope not. That key is gone now. It's in the trash. It really, it was like a very cathartic experience. She's wonderful. I'm so happy for you. So that's also why I feel a little bit more positive today. I feel lighter. Good. Not physically, but mentally. Emotionally. I'm glad. How are you feeling? I feel a bit under the weather. We're all going to keep our fingers and toes (laughs) crossed that it's not. The big C. You know what? No, no, I guess the little C. The big C is worse. What's the big C? Cancer. Oh, Jesus, Nick. No, No, I don't think it's cancer. Things are otherwise, they're they're great. You know, I can't talk about the one thing, but that's going well. (laughs) And... uh, I can't talk about this can other we, thing. Can we, can we that's, say that's that? That's also going well. <laughs> can we at least say, you little minx, you, like, can we acknowledge that you're working on a that will... Can we say that or no? No. Bleep all that out. <laughs> yeah, use a bleep. I want a bleep in there. I don't want to cut it out. No, I just want to be respectful of, like, the other people involved. And, of course, okay, there's... This you guys know, right. like, we're marketing people. There's a whole strategy behind this. And so it's yeah, like... Yeah, okay, fine, fine, fine. But it's... Very exciting and very exciting things happened with it this week. Yeah, I'm very happy. I guess that's why when you asked earlier, does it feel like the new year started now? And I think I've been fortunate enough to have kind of a exciting, happy thing happening in the background for a long time. And so I feel like we're being very mushy gushy today. I know, in this, this like, is not intro. very us. Normally I like to like, you know, Fuck virtually you. punch you across <laughs> Zoom and say... <laughs> But you know what? Let's have a positive episode. We have a great guest, actually. But first, let's do top stories. 
inauguration, I mean, now we're two days after inauguration when you'll be listening to this. So it's a little bit of like old news. But let's just quickly break down beauty looks. Chris Appleton from the front, from the back, from the side. JLo looked insane. The waves, the glamour. Have you Did you see all the Instagrams that she posted with like her glam team, which is 15 people? <laughs> and then her and A-Rod on the Capitol steps with like her manager, Benny Medina. And then there's a picture with her of like literally 15 people. And it says like JLo with her glam squad. And I'm like, I believe it. Michelle Obama looking better than ever. Than ever. Than ever. Jill Biden looking gorgeous. I love her matching mask. Like whoever thought we would be like talking about matching masks, but here we are. Nick, I'm going to be honest. I was not watching the inauguration. <laughs> what? What? I'm working. I knew it was happening though, because in the neighborhood, people started banging pots and pans. It was really cute. I got my phone out and recorded it. I did keep up afterwards. I saw you were texting me along the way and you texted me the photo of JLo. Yeah. I saw Amanda Gorman. Um, she was kind of the first beauty look where I was like, okay, people are going to be talking about this. Yeah. Because she was wearing that big puffy red Prada headband. She had some like really beautiful highlight happening on her face. I was actually checking around to the different like millennial beauty brands to see if any of them are going to take credit. <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah. You know, you know who I think, though, was the breakout star? And it's not really what I think, but what the internet seems to think was Ella Emhoff, who is Douglas Emhoff's daughter. Doug Emhoff is Kamala's husband. So this is Kamala's stepdaughter. She is, Annie, a woman after your own heart. She's like a real Brooklyn hipster. <laughs> and she you. Like, seem- <laughs> What is that make, supposed to mean? She like makes her own clothes. She like crochets. I'm, she... Look, I have nothing against a Brooklyn hipster. I think they're great. I think Ella is great. But what is with people pegging me as a Brooklyn hipster? This is I'm because you live asked, in Brooklyn. Now I do. I don't know. I mean, like, I, I wouldn't. It's not the worst thing you could be called. It's not the worst thing you could be called, except for when people say it with disdain. Which I wasn't. No, you weren't. But anyway, she was wearing, I believe she was wearing sparkly Mew Mew. She just looked amazing and gave us a little bit of like fashion, fashion, which, you know, we can always appreciate as fashionistas ourselves. So is Mucha Prada just like, I'm going to dress all the youngsters at the inauguration? Is that what happened? I don't know. I wonder whether like for someone like her, whether she's being dressed or whether it's she's buying it. I have a feeling they're being dressed like Christopher John Rogers, which... Okay, I can't claim that we're friends. I can claim that we are friendly. You and CJR? Yes, because he, when I used to consult for different brands, uh, one of the brands that he was working for, a fashion label, he was like a print designer there. No, maybe not a print designer, but he, he was on the design team there. And it was very clear in the office amongst his colleagues that, you know, he was very special. Shortly thereafter, he left and like has slowly been not even no slowly is like the absolute wrong word for this. Like he's like shot to like stardom. And he was one who made Kamala's purple coat, I guess her whole outfit for the inauguration. Yeah. So that's pretty cool. And uh, are we missing anyone? Bernie, obviously. Uh, Bernie looking like he's. My favorite tweet on Bernie was from Miss Reezy, who is a fellow podcaster from the Unofficial Expert podcast. She tweeted, Bernie dressed like the inauguration is on his to-do list today, but ain't his whole day. (laughs) (laughs) 
There was also so many fun ones like uh, that I sent to my parents that were all like basically Jewish jokes. Uh, a woman named Chandra Steele captioned the picture. In Jewish yoga, this pose is waiting for my wife at Lohman's. <laughs> and then there was like ones about Zaybars, like waiting online for the fish guy at Zaybars. Like it was, uh, he's a, he has a certain look and I loved it. But here's what I loved and you'll love this is that, did you know that his mittens were made out of uh, recycled plastic water bottles? As a Brooklyn hipster that makes her own clothes, I do, I love that tidbit. Thank you so much. Yes. They were given to him by a teacher in Vermont who, I guess, knit them out of I, like are they made out of yarn recy- made. I, I think they're yeah, made out, out of recycled, recycled water bottles. Sweaters. I have a fun fact about recycled water bottles and clothing. It is a very common marketing trope now where you see pe- brands talking about how their clothing and swimsuits are made out of recycled water bottles, but- Apparently that's just been happening for a very long time and brands like haven't been talking about it because it's not like chic. Correct. They were made out of recycled sweaters, not water bottles. I got a little too excited. (laughs) But I guess she's had like 60,000 requests since Bernie wore them and she says, sadly, I have no more mittens for sale. Aww. They are pretty gorgeous though. Gorgeous. I'm sure you can like, what do they call it? Get the look on Etsy. Should we check Etsy now? Bernie Sanders... Mittens. First thing that comes up is Bernie Sanders mittens. <laughs> oh, no. Etsy creators, get on this. What else do we have this week? Guys, normally we don't like to gossip this much, but here we are. It's been a slow beauty news week. Uh, your neighbor, Gina Bizzagano, she has a salon in Beverly Hills. Gina Bizzagano, owner of Gina Eyelashes, was arrested for participating in the Capitol Hill riots Pictures of her online with like mascara running down her face, and she's a disgrace to Beverly Hills. Well, how were her lashes though? Were they intact? Uh, great question. I don't know. So th- apparently, she was released on bond, but there was a Loyola Law School professor who was commenting for a CBS LA story who said these are serious charges and they could absolutely rack up in terms of seeing federal prison time. So let's just say that if you have an appointment with Gina's eyelashes and skincare, I would probably make other arrangements. I like this. I don't like I don't like what happened, but I I like this story. If you're not following the Snapchat channel for the Daily Mail, they're doing the you're Lord's work. You're still on Snapchat? Only for the Daily Mail app. It's just really good and like they do like 25 stories a day and they like have little animations like it's crazy. There must be a team of 30 people working on it. Anyway, I got these next two news stories from the Daily Mail app. You're welcome. The first one is Gwyneth Paltrow's This Smells Like My Vagina Candle was blamed for an explosion in London. A woman named Jody Thompson lit the $75 candle, and then she said, quote, the candle exploded and emitted huge flames with bits flying everywhere. I've never seen anything like it. The whole thing was ablaze, and it was too hot to touch. There was an inferno in the room. They got it under control. They threw it out the front door, but it could have burned the place down. You know what? This has happened to me before with a very chic candle brand. It exploded? It exploded. I think it has something to do with like the glass. You put something in and it makes it stronger. And if there's any like imperfection, like combined with heat, combined with smoke and whatever, like it can cause it to break and shatter. And yeah, one day I was burning a candle in my room and I heard like a really loud pop. And that's the scary. Glass head. But look, you know, 
Out of, think of how many vagina candles she's sold. And true. this is how many explosions have we heard about? This is the only one. Okay, but here's my one thing I wanted to say about candles. This is just another reason why you should never leave a candle burning in a room that you're not in. Even if you have it on like a fireproof surface, even if it's on marble, like whatever, do not leave it burning. Like there's not, it's not just that like it would catch fire on a drape or something. It could literally explode. Okay, this is another good story. Actually, several people DM'd and and texted me about this story asking us to cover it on Eyewitness Beauty. So here we go. Kylie Jenner drew a lot of, I want to say like sarcastic comments regarding a video she posted of her shower and particularly the fact that her shower, the water pressure seemed really subpar. So like there was a video she posted on Instagram. It's like a marble shower with a shower head and like the water is just kind of like, you know, like it just feels like a New York City shower head, which is like to say that the water pressure isn't great. And you would think a billionaire, quote unquote, would have like a fabulous shower with the fabulous water pressure that would like massage you and you know, rub your back for you. And users and Twitter people exploded about this. She ultimately did respond, which is ridiculous, but she did saying that this was actually her office shower. And then she shot a video of her home shower, which of course has like a digital thermometer thing where you can probably like scan your face and it'll know what temperature you like your running water. I don't know. But anyway, no one needs to worry. She has good water pressure, except in the office. Ugh, she can't win, you know? Like, people are critical when she buys her toddler and a $50,000 Hermes backpack for her first day of pre-K. And now, what, she saves a little money in her office shower and people are up in arms? I always say, Kylie Jenner can't win. She can't win? No, she can't win. Nick, does this make you uncomfortable? Lay it on me. Menopause. No. Well, apparently it makes a lot of people uncomfortable, specifically male VCs, because there's a story this week in Crunchbase, and I think it's been a conversation that's been happening in the background in terms of like brands and the health and wellness and beauty space is that there's not a lot of not a lot to offer women who are going through menopause. And Bloomberg is saying that by 2025, 1.1 billion women are expected to be postmenopausal. So what's that dollars-wise? Uh, $600 billion of spending opportunity that is largely untapped. What's kind of interesting about this article is they compare, you know, like the postmenopausal segment with like the fertility and like wanting to get pregnant group of people. And what they say is, which is very true, is that, you know, if you think about fertility, it's nine months, but menopause can last anywhere from four to 30 years. And the fact that there's all these companies and startups that are focused on fertility and pregnancy and infant formulas and diapers and all these things that are actually, in reality, much shorter periods of your life, that the menopause segment is totally underrepresented. Only 5% of femtech startups address menopause. And, you know, I think that's probably because a, I mean, having been in the room with with VCs and pitching ideas, I would imagine it would be really hard to get a group of dude VCs excited about a menopause brand because they're like, they can't relate to it. And so much of what VCs are betting on is like the founder and like the idea. And if they can't really wrap their head around the idea and they can't really identify with the founder who ideally would be someone who was 
in this category, they're not going to invest or they're not going to know how to invest. So it's it's tough. I mean, I think we need more older female VCs. Yeah. And I think unfortunately with VCs in startup land and this whole space, it's like, even though you hear the term innovation a lot, if they don't have a case study to point to of another brand or business that was really successful in the space, they are actually very risk averse. Yep. <laughs> and so if there's not a successful menopausal brand to say like, look, they did it and we're going to do it this way. So you should give us your money. Then you're going to have a hard time getting them to give you their money. Really, the main takeaway here is everything starts with education, right? And that's really the the gap right now for menopause. Like women don't even know that they're going through it. <laughs> yeah. They don't know when to expect it. So even though there is like a big opportunity in terms of consumer spending, it actually is like a little bit more complicated than that to prime consumers to spend money in this category. There just needs to be more education around like menopause and periods, probably in general. And women's health in general too, right? Like you see all the time innovations and breakthroughs being made in terms of things that men are going through because a lot of doctors and researchers at the top have historically been yeah. men. And a lot of years and years and years, decades of research has been done to support innovation for men. But women have always gotten the short end of the stick. Okay, I have one little idea, which could, you know, little ideas can make big change. Is you know how in grade school, they separate the quote unquote boys and the quote unquote girls for like sex ed? Yes. Because it's like less awkward or something. And I don't know why. They shouldn't do that. Like men and women and boys and girls should all like know how everyone's bodies work. Because let me tell you something. My husband and I are having a girl and we have not a clue how a woman's body works. That's true. And that's a problem. Like I've been like trying to like understand it. I watched a video on childbirth showing childbirth, which I had never seen before. And like I, there's all these things I don't know about like how, how it works. And I wish it was part of like a sex ed curriculum that I had taken. Yeah, I'm trying to remember. I think the sex ed class that we had, it was like the gym teacher with like a video. It's fine. Make it a video so that like, you know, you can have an expert explain it. But like have boys and girls in the same room and having to like have these conversations. You know who needs to get on this? Who? TikTok. They need to empower the best TikTok creators with the knowledge on, you know, sex ed and they need to teach the youth about what's going on with their bodies. And then, you know, eventually when <laughs> all the women going through menopause start downloading TikTok, they yeah. can do that for them too. I think we solved it. What's the lag time? When did everybody's mom start getting Facebook? <sighs> Probably 10 years, you think? Okay. So, well, let's accelerate that. Nick and I just really made a breakthrough here. And um, I think we solved this issue. We have to get our moms on TikTok. This is actually a really interesting story with a huge potential for a lot of businesses. France is the first country in the EU that can now export some cosmetics to China without testing them on animals. So, and this is according to Women's Wear Daily. As someone who's like been in the room and in a lot of these conversations, when you want to expand to China, which is obviously a huge opportunity because it's such a big country for a lot of cosmetics and skincare brands, one of the hurdles and or considerations has been that in order to sell in China, the Chinese government requires a certain animal test, meaning you can't claim cruelty free. And there are brands that have foregone Chinese expansion because they wanted to stay true to their cruelty free ethos. 
There are other brands who've tried to sell in China and say they're cruelty-free and then they get called out. But it's really been one of those things where consumer watchdog groups and really educated influencers will like not support certain Estee Lauder brands or certain L'Oreal brands because they sell in China and they know that that means testing on animals. So the fact that China is now allowing a certain category of cosmetics, particularly they're called ordinary cosmetics, which includes like shampoo and conditioner and things like that, to be sold without testing on animals means that potentially... China will loosen restrictions on other categories and other countries so that they can sell without testing. And that means that like Tarte, for example, or Hourglass or any of those makeup brands that don't test on animals, which most don't in the US, would now be able to sort of continue to expand without a huge consumer backlash. Yeah, I think that that's great. I think there are some drawbacks here. It's very expensive to meet the requirements to get this form. Yeah, you have to present a certificate conforming to, quote, good manufacturing practices, which is issued by authorities in their home countries. It's actually more complicated than that even. So under these new laws, cosmetics companies must provide a certificate of analysis for each individual ingredient in their formulas. Oh, wow. And that also means that every time that they switch suppliers, so even if it's the same ingredient, if they sell out of all their units they make a new batch, they had to switch suppliers for even one ingredient, they have to get that form for that new ingredient from that supplier. So it's very cost prohibitive. So smaller brands are really not going to be able to meet all these requirements and invest in this way. Right. But I think it's like, you know, the big brands, L'Oreal, the biggest, you know, French beauty conglomerate, like they can probably invest in doing this. And I'm sure they're very happy to go into China. But I also think like caveat all this by saying like there are Loopholes are not is not the right word, but there are instances where brands are technically sold in China. That doesn't mean that they have tested on animals. Like through certain ways to distribute? Yeah, there's actually a really great like flow chart on ethicalelephant.com. I wanted to check because I also have had to be aware of these things for stuff that I've worked on over the years. And there's different factors like are the cosmetics, are they made in China? Are they sold in China? Are they sold on the mainland? Are they sold in, in Hong Kong? Are they quote unquote special use cosmetics? Are they quote unquote ordinary cosmetics? Like there's a lot of different factors that go into the regulations on whether or not you as a brand have to test. And then there's also this moment called post-market animal testing. And so that's the one where a lot of these companies, they can maybe are sold at like a retailer in China they're cruelty-free as a brand. They've never tested on animals. The issue there is a uh, someone from the Chinese Cosmetics Regulatory Agency can actually go in, take products off the shelf, and test them you know, and do animal testing there. So even if you do all these things to make it so that your brand doesn't test on animals, is sold in China, there is still a possibility that the Chinese government will test your product on animals. So I don't know that it's necessarily fair to write off every brand that like maybe you've seen sold in China and saying that they're like lying to consumers by saying they're cruelty free. It's way more complicated than that. But yeah, I think this is great. Also, the other thing that's complicated is like, guess what's tested on animals? Every single medication. You know what else has been tested on animals? Every single ingredient in every cosmetic that you use. True. Sorry. It's like, you know, these ingredients have been tested and vetted and as being safe, they've been tested on animals. They've made these regulations where like, okay, you don't have to test on animals anymore in the US, but they have been tested on animals previously. So 
you know, it's kind of like these bigger brands and brands that have been around for a very, very, very long time have kind of like taken the <laughs> the hit on the animal testing previously yep. so that, you know, all these like great beauty brands that have come along afterwards can say like, oh, we know this ingredient is safe because it was tested before. That's actually an interesting point. And I learned this when we were creating the sex gel for Necessaire. And that is a, it's considered a medical device because it's a personal lubricant mm-hmm. and you have to get FDA clearance in order to get FDA clearance, you basically have to show an equivalency. So like instead of doing all the clinical testing from the ground up to show that every single ingredient is safe and, you know, safe for condoms and all these sort of things, you basically have to say that like this ingredient list is similar to another one that's been approved. And that's how you get your approval. So like in the same way, if you're creating a new cosmetic and you want to make sure it's safe, like you're not having to say that XYZ thing is safe is you're saying like, oh, it's in this thing that is marked safe. It's already in a product that is safe. So like by extension, this one is safe. There's a lot of that that is a way that a younger or an indie brand can get cleared from a safety perspective just by like being able to point to each ingredient saying like, okay, this is found in this thing, which has been tested. You can rely on the bigger companies who've done, who have the money and the resources to do the clinical research to say like, okay, this concentration, for example, of retinol or something is effective in this way. And you don't have to actually do the research yourself. So there's ways that the companies take the hit, but they also enable and empower younger indie brands to like be able to come out with products that they wouldn't by themselves be able to like support and bring to market. Another time where we can say thank you to the overlords at L'Oreal. Yep. So I think that that's it for our top stories this week. Should we introduce our special guest? Let's do it. This was one of the biggest gets at Into the Gloss, an icon of style and also I think of beauty, Jenna Lyons, who was the president of J. Crew. She was at J. Crew for 27 years, and then she left in 2019 and has now created a fake eyelash brand called Love Scene. She has a show on HBO that's sort of like a docu-series slash reality show. She's making moves. She is awesome. Yeah. For someone as powerful and like storied as she is and has been made out to be, she name drops Anna Wintour like it's like nothing. (laughs) And... She's so kind and so welcoming. I think hers was the first top shelf interview I went on. And I've worked with her just a couple of times over the years. We shot her for a Glossier campaign and she was just so down to collaborate. And And this is someone who at a certain point at J. Crew, had 600 people under her. It's insane. And her energy level is is so insane, which is why she's able to do so much. You'll hear her talk in the episode around like about all the different projects and companies that she has going on at one time. But I think this interview, you know, we talk about beauty. Of course, we are a beauty podcast, but my favorite part was talking with her about her career and how she has maneuvered life after J. Crew. I think you had like a really great question on, you know, you've been in a brand for so long that in a way that like, kind of defines who you are as a person. How do you move forward when you're not Jenna from J. Crew? So here's our interview. You and Annie <laughs> have met in person. I've never met you. We go way back. You we first a- met in 2014. So I came to do your top shelf interview for Into the I Boss. remember. But your hair is so long and luxuriated now. Look at you. Oh, my COVID hair. It gets caught in my jeans now. Ooh, Crystal Gale vibes. Crystal Gale. Okay, I have to Google You don't even know who that is? (laughs) (laughs) Okay, I get to call you baby. 
<laughs> okay, that's fine. I'll take it. <laughs> but I remember like coming to Astor Place. I was so nervous because you were like the biggest interview that I had done at that point. No And way. I didn't really do the interview. I was kind of like just in the room. <laughs> but you were Aww. very nice. That's so- to early into the gloss, I would say you, Michelle Lamy, and maybe just you two were like kind of the ultimate gets for like what in terms really? of a, in terms of a top shelf. Yeah. Like the ultimate. Wow. I mean, and Michelle, like we could never, we should, Michelle, we couldn't really access the, like finally landing the Jenna Lyons interview was like a big day for Into the Gloss. Listen, I'm so flattered. Little did you know that I would literally end up not doing anything, but I know I'm, I'm so flattered. That's so sweet. Thank you. It was fun for me. It was so nice. I think the edit test that we had our intern that we hired Nick before you left do was editing like a fake Jenna Lyons top shelf. (laughs) (laughs) We were like trying to manifest it. Oh my God. That is so sweet. I love it. It's so interesting how like small the world is and how things go around. And then since then you've started a business and you guys are like proven and Bossy is doing incredibly well. And I really don't have a job. We were so excited to talk to you. Number one. Number two, personally, I I need an answer selfishly, which is when I left Into the Gloss, I had like a total identity crisis because I had sort of become the way that I like described it to my therapist. <laughs> like I, I, I had become, you know, Nick from Into the Gloss to everyone. Mm-hmm. And Into the Gloss was this really fucking cool thing. It was very like hot at the moment. And then one day I was... Or I was different to the gloss, and the next day I wasn't. Right. You know, not to over dramatize it, but it was super traumatic, and it took me a long time to sort of disentangle, you know, my identity. Like, who am I professionally? Who am I? Like, what's my social capital? If I'm not Nick from Into the Gloss, if I'm not, you know, Nick from part of this thing, and and I know you were J Crew for 26 years, and then not part of J Crew, you were the face of this yeah. thing. What happened, sort of like the day after? I appreciate you being honest and open about it because I think a lot of people are surprised. For some reason, it feels very hard for a lot of people to talk about. And I think it's nice that you're open about it. I went through, I mean, I named <laughs> my new sort of parent company that sort of sits at Lions LAD, which is Lions Life After Death, because it really did feel like a part of my life had sort of died. I struggled. The other thing that you can't possibly imagine or I didn't realize is that my whole life kind of went away. I had assistants who took care of everything, had someone who managed my personal life, someone who managed my professional life, someone who managed all of my PR and press. Like I barely knew how to send an attachment. I mean, it was kind of crazy because I had come up in the world when computers, like I didn't have a computer when I first started at J.Crew. They didn't, designers didn't have them. We sketched everything by hand. We wrote faxes by hand. We communicated via phone. And I started to get more senior at a time when computers started to get given to the design team. And so I never had one. I, I, mean, I had one, but I used it for email. And I really missed that whole tier of education and communication. Like the digitization of design. It passed me by. And yeah. not just design, because we never went to digital design ever. We were drawing until the day I left. It was more just the way people communicated. And I'm like, I can't do an Excel spreadsheet. Like, I don't know how to do that. Someone else took care of my bills. Like all that stuff. I was sort of So there was this part of me that was connected from, you know, as you said, a social capital, like who am I? Like the invitation stuff coming. I didn't get invited to anything anymore. I was really alone and it felt really kind of dark, but it was, I think, probably the best thing that could have happened to me. You can believe your own hype and, you know, it feels nice when you pick up the phone and you call someone on general lines from J. Crew, and you get what you want most of the time. You know, people will pick up the phone, they'll take your call. And that's a really 
privileged perspective and place to sit. And it's really healthy to not have it. And it's really humbling. (laughs) Yeah. What helped you sort of like adjust to life post? I felt really bad and really upset for a long time that I didn't get a lot of phone calls because I really thought, oh, I'll get another job. It'll be fine. And that didn't happen. Nobody called. (laughs) And, you know, I think that's a really weird thing to experience to be someone. People are probably always like your friends are always saying, oh, you must be getting calls all all the time off with the phones running off the hook. And yeah, everyone said that uh, the number of people are like, oh, don't worry, the phone. It just didn't happen. Mm -hmm. I'm sure some people thought that I was locked up, which I, I was to a certain extent. I couldn't necessarily take another job right away. But what I think I didn't realize is the impact on my ego and my personal state. However, like I said, it was the best thing that happened to me because it made me take other conversations. I never would have had, I would never have started another business. I never would have done a TV show. And maybe those were terrible ideas, but I'm happy I did them (laughs) because I had an incredible experience doing that. And, you know, I'm working on a hotel and like, I get to do things I probably would never have taken the chance to do because nothing else happened. And I also felt really disconnected from the fashion world when I left because it disconnected from me. I, you know, and I could have made a deeper effort. Don't get me wrong. It's not a pity party. It's not like I needed somebody to say, Hey, come play with us. I was quiet myself, but I, it was a gift, a fucking gift. It was the hardest gift I've ever had to receive, but I'm happy it happened. Well, is there a reason that you didn't kind of re-engage in the fashion world as opposed to starting a new like chapter in the beauty space? I know this is going to sound like a really lame answer and probably like somewhat disbelief, but like by the time I realized what was happening, like meaning I had taken, I was just taking calls. Like I was taking like calls for random people, people that had nothing to do with the fashion industry. Like some, my friend Susie called and said, do you want to do a line of furniture? And that evolved into doing a hotel. And I took another call from a friend who was like, my friend wants to talk to you about a TV show. And I'm like, I don't want to do it, but I'll like buy me a free lunch and I'll come. And that turned into me doing a TV show. And before I really realized what was happening, I was doing these other things and I thought they would all fall away and they didn't. And I couldn't, <laughs> I couldn't believe it. I still kind of can't believe it. I know it sounds weird that I should have like, like I sat around and waited for it to come, but I like, I didn't, I don't even know where to start. You know, I, I definitely put the word out and I called my favorite headhunter who I know is Karen Harvey. And I was like, Hey, I'm back in the market. And everyone knew I was back in the market. It was almost in like a tricky situation in which you were so big in the fashion world that like there were only a certain like there's Celine like where where are you going to go like that's bigger or more important you know people thought they probably couldn't afford you that you wouldn't do it that it would seem publicly like optically like a step down or something I think that all of those things are honestly kind of true I also think my name was so synonymous with other brands that if you have a brand unless the person who's there is gone so for instance like I would have loved to Don Ralph but Ralph still exists and he's still around he doesn't want somebody like me coming along because there's a different connotation and I didn't really want to do Banana Republic or The Gap like I felt like that would just be the same thing I'd already done and so I didn't really have a lot of options. Like I really thought about like, what would I do? And I remember talking to Anna Wintour about it. And she said to me, she's like, you shouldn't do fashion, just do TV. Now this was before the TV show happened. I don't know how she figured that one out, but we'd been doing the Vogue fashion fun together and it was on TV for a while. And she's like, you know, I think you excel at that. You should do that. I was like, she's smart. That woman. She knew like where to kind of place you, like what medium? I think she's much more of a puppet master than any of us realize. I think she's got a lot of tendrils and understands how things work behind the scenes and has is very intuitive in that way. I feel like she's known for that, right? <laughs> oh, totally. She has a unique position. She knows every single designer. She knows every single 
owner of all of the houses. She knows who's talented. She knows where they've been. She knows what their skill set is. She's met them. She's seen what they're capable of. She's seen the trajectory of their career. She knows the entire landscape. That's a pretty unique position to sit in. She's like a stock trader. She's like seen like patterns happen so many times over like the (laughs) decades and decades she's been doing it. She could probably place you in a way that like a lot of other people couldn't. I agree completely. The other thing I was curious about is, you know, you seem to be an incredibly creative person, you know, someone who would just like have like the most amazing mood boards, like in their office and like fabric swatches and all this stuff. But having very briefly for very short amounts of times worked in corporate, I know that it can suck the creativity out of you. You know, you have to be a certain type of person to be able to like understand how to play the game. And you obviously figured out how to thrive in that environment. And now you're doing freelancing and startups, which is totally different. Well, thank you. It was 27 years. Don't get rid of me. <laughs> I mean, I think you're right. It is really hard. And I, I will say I am deeply, deeply appreciative. You know, I'm Mickey Drexler, who I worked with, was so supportive of creative. And it is unusual to find that level of support and reference for creativity. Do you like protect you from the corporate bullshit? No, there's no, I mean, there is no way to kind of not play. You can't have it both ways. You need to be able to understand and see both sides. But what I think he did do, which I'm deeply appreciative, is he put it on the same level as the business. So he said by making the president of the company, he was saying, I believe that creativity is is paramount to the business doing well, is paramount to the health of the brand. And it's just as important as the money. He believed those two things were synonymous. And I think by making that statement, it really did help me be able to manage my own course through the bullshit. You know, I mean, when I say bullshit, I mean this, you know, it's just like budget meetings and all of the hard stuff that you don't want to talk about. You know, at one point I had over 600 people reporting into me and like- Is that 600 like performance development plans you had to sign off on? I had like 14 direct reports. So 14 direct reports is 14 still, reviews and all yeah. that sort of stuff. That stuff eats you alive. It is a lot. And of course, everyone wants to do well. Everyone wants to raise. Everyone wants to move up. Everyone wants to get promoted. And it's like, of course, I get it. Like we all, everyone wants to continue to grow, of course. But when you're managing that many people, it's like, it's just, it takes a lot of bandwidth and energy and mental adrenaline to kind of keep going with all of that. And it does take away from just dreaming a little bit. I mean, I think that's the biggest pleasure I've had of not having a big job is to dream and like to come up with ideas and be creative. It's harder to do that when you're thinking about the health of a massive organization. What percentage of your day, year, week, however you would want to think about it, would be business stuff? And what percentage would be like actual creative inspo stuff? So hard to answer that question because I think what you, I guess, and I think that's what was so interesting is that to me, the creativity drove the business. So it's, in other words, I don't think you ever stop. It's not that when the day is over at six o'clock, I stop thinking about something. It's like, oh, I might be looking at a website and think, oh, wow, it's really interesting that this website allows you to check out and they add a couple of different things onto your cart. And this actually made my experience better. And it made me see that that top actually works really well with that jacket or whatever. And it's like, oh, that's a great idea. I wonder if we could do that. You don't really separate or stop. It's not so cut and dry. I do think it ebbed and flowed for sure. I think the personnel part is the hardest part. It's the yeah. people stuff, of keeping people motivated, feeling good. It's so hard. It's the hardest part for me now. You feel stretched and then like, are you taking care of your team? It's like, oh, it's so hard. What are you doing now? I'm consulting. I'm working with a few incubators, developing new brands. It's funny, like the hardest thing always for me in Into the Gloss and in Necessaire was the personnel stuff because it's not something that you 
take a class in if you don't go to business school. I guess, or I don't even know if they offer that in business school, but I didn't go to business school. And it's something that can feel in the moment, like beside the point where like you have so many things to do. Like not only do you have to like, you know, do something for the investors, do something to drive the business, like do all, you know, do the photo shoot, do the this, do the that, you know, send out the package. But you also have to like take out the trash and like, you know, all like all the things you're doing. And then if someone seems like they're like a little upset or like having a bad day, like to say, okay, I need to spend an hour to take this, to stop everything, you know, and take this person out to coffee because they're clearly having a bad day. Um, takes It takes experience to know, wait, like that person's energy is going to affect everyone's energy. So it's better to nip it in the bud. But I always found that the most challenging is making the time and prioritizing people management. Yeah. And imagine having that on a massive scale. It's like, there's always an upset apple cart. It's just inevitable. And that's why I'm wondering, like, was a lot of your time taken up, not taken up in a bad way, but just consumed by the management piece? I mean, yes. And again, it is, as you said, it has a massive ripple effect. It can impact the quality of the creativity of the interactions between people and the quality of the decisions that they're able to make based on how they're feeling with each other. All of that. It is, as you said, it's the single biggest challenge. And it's also the thing that nobody teaches you and it only comes with experience. Yeah. And there's no real way, like there's no shortcut to learning that. And again, like I said, I still get it wrong. I still struggle. And now we're doing it in COVID, which is like a whole other shit show. Like try hiring a team and then managing them with the text message. I mean, it's like insane. It doesn't work. It's like, no. And you have to think like on top of all of the kind of life stressors that any person could be going through that you've kind of hopefully learned to deal with in some way throughout your entire career as like managing people or whatever. Now it's like our whole world seems to be crumbling around us. So you have to keep that in your mind. You're like, wait, do we need to like take stock here? And maybe like everybody needs to like work a little bit slower and be a little bit more, I don't know, softer with each other because we're going through probably the most insane time in like world history, in modern world history. True. I think what we forget is, you know, we don't get to spend any time together. I was having a conversation. My assistant who was with me for 13 years, I was just saying, oh, I have a new person working with me. And we were talking about like, we don't get to spend any time together. Nicole was sitting on the other side of a wall, which was only a half wall. So she heard every single conversation in my office. She always knew if someone came into my office and left and they were happy, or she saw if they left and they were sad. She understood the temperature of the entire ecosystem. And she also knew every single project I was working on and who connected to that project and who was running the project. She just through osmosis was able to really understand and see what's going on. And that's the part that is really killing me now is just scaling up and getting people assimilated is like, I mean, we have a social media person who I absolutely adore, who works on Love Scene. I have been in the same room with that person three times. I mean, we hired him on a Zoom call and I couldn't even see him. He was literally a black square because I was out at the beach and I did not have any reception. And I'm literally looking at a square. There's a lot that happens with someone talking to you with their smile and whether they give you eye contact, you know, that that stuff is really helpful. And so it's weird to be hiring people (laughs) behind a screen. Speaking of which, how did you go about setting up the business? I guess you were in all those as the president, like you're in all those meetings about numbers and stuff. (laughs) The experiences that I had that served me also tripped me up. And the reason I say that is that I, my expectations of the way something would be done. I'm not used to scrappy. I'm used to getting stuff done, maybe with not all of the components, but I had people I could call on for any number of things. And oftentimes they were specialized, but here we have, you know, seven people and the same people who are 
interviewing people for our 3PL is the same person that's setting up the website is interviewing the person who's doing the development is the same person that's dealing with our packaging is the same, you know, that's one person. Then we have one person who's project managing and following the flow of everything. Then we have someone who's designing the website, but also designing the packaging, working with the developer, like coming to on the photo shoot, working with the retoucher and it's all hands on deck. Everyone's doing multiple things. Whereas in my previous life, we would have had someone who did copy, someone who did graphic design, someone who worked on the website. They're all different jobs. And so I'm, I was fumbling a little bit, you know, I I bet what's helpful though, is the understanding of corporate, whatever, what's the tree where like the family org chart, org chart, org chart, (laughs) understanding that and really wrapping your head around like what a role is because you've had to like, you know, approve job descriptions and all that sort of stuff so many times, like it must be helpful when you're setting the foundation. I think the most relative is the process. I remember really distinctly when we were filming the show and someone was like, well, can't you just tell them to like, if you're thinking about a brand name, have somebody do some logos for you and just put them in front of you. And I'm like, but you don't do that. You have to get the name. Then you actually clear it with legal first because you don't, there's no reason to go out and make a name and then do all the graphic design and then find out that you can't use that name. There's just a process. And so understanding the process of how things get done and how early copy and voice has to get developed. And I knew that, and that was super helpful. Also understanding how to work with production people and say, well, no, this is what I want. This is the steps I want having fittings and really trying things and perfecting them and the level of detail that you need to give a factory and how to speak with them. And that kind of stuff was really, really helpful. Is your umbrella company, it's Jenna Lions After Death, Lions After Death? Sounds like you said out for death. (laughs) (laughs) I like that too. It's even more aggressive. We had to change it because that was for me. So that's like a pass through because I have so many different projects going on. That's a what? That's a pass through. Do you know what that is? I've heard of it, but I don't know what it is. I can explain for anyone who is interested. So I have so many different projects. And so in order to manage the finances of those different projects, I have basically it's a pass-through company basically. So I can bring all the finances in and then pay people out of that because not everyone works on every project. So like the hotel project is one team, love scene sits over here. I'm also working on furniture thing. And I'm also working on a consulting business for Rockefeller Center. And so that allows me to to have all of the money come into one place. Right. So that's like the bigger organization. However, because I have so many other projects and there's other projects that I cannot mention that are percolating right now. We're creating like a creative agency that's called Sort of Creative because that's we're sort of creative. I, I like to say that I'm sort of creative and we're going to bucket everything in there because it's getting too complicated. And I'm not making it any clearer by telling you that, but that is what's happening. So Love Scene is the fake lashes brand. Is the fake lashes, which I'm wearing now. Can you see? Oh my God, oh, yeah. they're really pretty. Thank you. I don't understand fake lashes actually. How long do they last? Do you have to take them off every night? You do. I mean, if you're like bad, like I mean, in some of my like earlier days, party nights, I might not have taken them off. So you can wear them as many times as you want if you don't put a lot of makeup on. If you put a lot of makeup on, makeup and mascara in particular degrades them. And, and also it's when you take it off, it, they're, they're delicate. So like you should be really careful. I don't put mascara on mine because I don't really want that look. So I can wear them, you know, like seven, eight times, but I don't use a lot of glue either. And I don't wear, I just don't wear a lot of makeup. So if you put a lot of mascara on, they'll probably, you'll probably get like three or four. And they don't hit your glasses? No, these aren't long. Ours are pretty delicate. That was the whole idea is that I don't have any eyelashes. And so I was noticing all the women in my office when I could always tell when someone was getting married because they come in with like eyelash extensions. Oh, Oh my God. And they were like, literally they would arrive in the room before they did. I was like, oh, there are the eyelashes. And then like, um, I don't know if you ever watched like Huda Beauty. Have you ever seen Huda Beauty? Yeah. So all of those girls who are putting on like seven layers of like contour and highlighter and foundation and then at the very end they plop on an eyelash i'm like that's so weird like these women at jay who are wearing no makeup at all and then these huda beauty girls who are like and an eyelash and i thought that was interesting that two opposite ends of the spectrum of people are wanting the same 
volume in their eyes, but there wasn't anything in between. And so our lashes are made for people who want to wear them like on a daily basis and don't want them to be so big. And so I'm wearing the iris and it's pretty like it's chill looking. They're like the no makeup makeup false lashes. Yes. Thank you. You could do a PSA for us. I could build a beauty brand. You could. (laughs) I'm sure you could. (laughs) You are a beautiful girl and you have a lot of knowledge. You are the perfect person to do it. I mean, I probably shouldn't be doing it, but I did it anyway. I was an editor at Elle and then I went into the gloss and so went into beauty. And I think beauty people and fashion people are very different. Oh my God. Yes. You know, at the time, fashion people, they were snobby about beauty because beauty people, at least in the magazine world, were the ones who were kind of like, almost on the ad side, because they were like having to do stories for, you know, all the big advertisers that paid for the entire magazine. For most of the magazines, it's ironic. It was like kind of the dirty secret of magazines, because the glamour and the glitz was the cover shoots and the well stories. And that was all the fashion stuff. So the beauty people were oftentimes super, super intelligent, you have to have a really good sense of science to be in beauty, at least on the the Mm -hmm. media side. And then in general, Besides you, I don't know a ton of people who can make a lot of money in fashion. It's a glamorous industry, but at the end of the day, it's hard to make it work. And beauty, like the margins are better than fashion. Like it's it's a better business. There's more exits, you know, all that sort of stuff. So it just kind of attracts a different kind of person. What do you find the differences? I mean, there are so many differences. So I'll say two things. Beauty is about providing a service and providing a product because at the end of the day, all of us, you could wear the same eyelash I wear, Annie and I could wear the same lipstick, but we will still be us. And you are not necessarily changing me in any way. You're not giving me something to empower me or look different than I am other than feeling more beautiful with what I've got. Whereas fashion is transformative. Fashion can literally say a lot about who you are by putting on a single dress. And I think that they are two really different forms of communication. And the people who do them have different desires. I loved making clothes. It is is a very different experience because what you're getting to do is really touching someone in a really deep way. And it can be really transformative. And for anyone who's ever put on a beautiful suit or an incredible dress and walked out of their room feeling great. And not that having a beautiful face, you know, having someone put your makeup on can't do that, but it's very hard giving someone a product to create that experience for them. And that is a huge driver. It drove me for years. I loved that experience. It is, as you said, it's a totally different landscape. What I do love about beauty is that part of what I struggled with my job, particularly at the end, was that I felt like I was always disappointing someone. When you are making clothing for people, you know, I'm six feet tall and don't have any boobs. And the same thing that is going to fit beyond me is going to get graded down to a size two. And that thing, that size two person might be really curvy and have gigantic knockers. And the idea that we're going to wear the same thing and it's just going to be graded up or down is really hard. And so one of us is probably going to be disappointed. And that was happening more and more. And I think it was getting harder and harder to really make people feel happy. And with makeup, it doesn't matter how old you are. It doesn't matter what color your skin is. It doesn't matter whether you're a size 44, 22, eight or zero, you can play. And everyone is allowed in, whether you're a boy or a girl, you're trans, everyone is allowed. It's a different level of servicing a customer. And that is what's easier. I can make lashes and anyone can wear them. And that's really rewarding. And I, that barrier of like having a connection with somebody is way, way lower. I still really miss playing with sparkly shit and like tool and stuff. Like really for a gay lady, it's really surprising. I know, but it's like my favorite thing on the planet. 
You, it's funny, you like your eyes like did light up when you were talking about fashion and like as someone who never really bought into fashion, even when I was in it, like and I really bought into beauty, I kind of felt the opposite. I could go on and on about how transformative beauty is and how it allows you to like access designer or a lifestyle or something that like fashion felt more exclusionary, beauty felt more inclusive. I think you're talking about it though from the user experience. I'm talking about it from the producer or the designer. So as a designer... There's something really magical about knowing that you can transform someone and make them that. And, and like, you can't get the same thing from like a lipstick or an eye, like an eyelash can be great, but you still need the rest of it. And also you in the connection. So for instance, I don't know if you're wearing eyelashes from far away, unless I really come and look, or if we made a lipstick, I wouldn't know if you were wearing it. Whereas I remember walking through airports and seeing people wearing our double cloth coat. And like, I was so excited. It felt really good. Or the Obama girls wearing or something, you know, it's like, that is really tangible, very connected. You can connect to yourself and to other people. It's really different. And it's hard to know with beauty. And obviously you can see it through people purchasing your product, but you don't have that like recognition. I I feel like though, the more your brand grows and the more customers that you get and the more like reviews you start getting online, people are going to be reaching out to you telling you how like these lashes have like changed their life. You're going to see, I think that coming in on a more like intimate straight to your inbox, straight to your DMs basis. Everything you're saying about fashion, it's like, I've never thought that about fashion because I've never worked in fashion, but it makes perfect sense. On the beauty side, it's like that happens. So like, especially online, like I wouldn't know what beauty marketing or like growing an audience was like pre-digital, but there's so much of that in the beauty community online. It's like insane. <laughs> I'm excited. I'm still new. To the, I, like, I feel like a new kid on the block, which is weird being my age to feel new. The other thing I was thinking about in fashion that's just very different is there's this whole social aspect to it and the nightlife and the glitz and the glamour and the parties. And, you know, I guess there are like a lot of press days for beauty brands, but it's not, it's not at the same, there's not a Met Ball for My beauty. worst I mean, nightmare. <laughs> but like, but you were totally a staple of that world and that scene. And that's something that even fashion now doesn't, it kind of, you know, fizzled know. with a lot of different industry trends, but like, do you miss it? I'm so happy I got to do it, but I can honestly say, no, <laughs> I miss the people, you know, with every event comes the next day of people looking at themselves and like, did I get picked? Did anybody take my picture? And like, there is a tremendous amount of pressure that you can't really see. And, you know, I'll never forget the first time I went to the Met Ball. <laughs> so this is something that, that you don't know, but the way that the Met Ball is done is they give out tickets and you can tell whether you're important enough based on the time that you get. <laughs> so, Everything in fashion uh, is so it's, it's also, they had to schedule people so that. Yes, it but it's like fashion shows. It's like, sure, everyone can see, but if you're not in the front row, like you better go fuck yourself. And listen, again, you can't have everybody arriving at the same time. So there is some coordination, but basically, so I have two really unusual experiences. The first time I got a super early time slot, which is fine. You know, I was honored to be there, but it was the year that it was the Alexander McQueen show, you know, and he passed away. And the woman who had taken over, Sarah, was literally right in front of me. People were screaming my name and I was like, oh my God. And then I realized that they were asking me to get out of the way. <laughs> I was dying. Humbling. So, so that was the first time that I went to football. And then probably five years later, I was really late. Something had happened. I don't even remember what happened, but I think it was I was borrowing jewels or something and something had happened getting them late so we had security blah 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 and Beyonce had done this thing where she basically would arrive late because then she would have the red carpet to herself it's me on the red carpet and Beyonce <laughs> there's no one else I mean I could have 
literally dropped trial, taking my shirt off. No one would give me a shit. I don't think anybody took a single picture of me. <laughs> it was hysterical. No one even cared that I was there. I was like, okay, I'll just, I, you know, I'm just going to go. Like, that was just the most embarrassing thing I've ever experienced, but like all very humbling. I find that hard to believe because I feel like you were the coolest girl in fashion. Like fashion is very clicky and you were like the, the it girl. No, I wasn't. Oh my God. Sweetheart, what are you reading? I do not know. I mean, I don't know what you're saying. No, I mean, I was so not at all. Thank you for saying that. That's so. You literally invented a whole category of dressing, like the pajama, like dressing. I don't know if I could take credit for that, but I'll take it. I don't. Well, um, they gave you credit for it. So <laughs> yeah, I, get, I get credit for a lot of things that I really did not do. That that is really nice of you to say. It's really not the way it was, but it is a lot of pressure either way. I live on Mercer Street. The Mercer Hotel is right up on the corner, and there's constantly photographers there, particularly when the Kardashians are staying there. And so, like, I will never forget. I was walking on the street and I literally like, it looks like I'm picking my nose. I might actually have been picking my nose. God only knows. I don't know. And there's a picture of me walking on the street. And like, I mean, it was not a good look. And I could not believe that picture ended up somewhere. Someone sent it to me and my assistant. I don't even remember. And I was like, God, this is hot. Definitely has moments, but then it has not so great moments either. Like the time that I was getting rash cream for everyone after a horrible visit to an awful place called Atlantis. Don't ever go there. Oh, God, yeah. Everyone in the family had rashes, and I was literally at Dwayne Reed at like crack of ass. I had every cream, like all these like gross things in my basket. And someone said, Are you Channel Lions? And I was like, <laughs> No, I get that a lot. <laughs> There's just times when you like have condoms or, you know, lube or toilet, even toilet paper, you don't really want to run into anyone. You know what? Like, yeah, like not right now. I feel like also t- having now done a TV show, TV reaches a totally different slash new audience that even fashion or, you know, beauty doesn't just because it's consumers of just TV who may not care about fashion or beauty. What has it been like to be in that world? Well, I mean, I think it's so different. I don't know because of COVID. Like we had no wrap party. We had no launch party. You know, people can't see me. I'm wearing a mask and glasses and it's so weird. And it'll be interesting to see if there is a second season, if the world comes back, what it will feel like. But right now I don't know. It's so strange. You know, the difference is, and you said it earlier, Annie is like, the landscape has changed. Like now there's social media didn't exist when I was coming up in the world. So now people have a direct access to you and they do DM, but I can't possibly manage it. But people are nice. So cool. I was talking to a friend about your show and my friend really loves the show. And she was saying one of the things that I find the most impressive and like special is the way that Jenna delivers feedback. And I was reading an interview you gave that also sort of touched on this idea that you have like a special ability to deliver criticism and or compliments in a package that feels good? I try. I'm sure that I don't always. So (laughs) is that just something that you've always been good at? No, I mean, I think first of all, I'm not always good at it. I really try. I learned one really important lesson once years ago where I was a new boss. I'd been promoted over some people and I made the assumption, like I had been in a situation where I had somebody who I had reported to and, and they would do this thing that drove me a little bit crazy where they were like, can you make it a little bit more like this and a little bit less like this, but never really telling me, which of course made me work harder, but I felt like, God, I just, if you're not liking what I'm showing you, can you just be clear about what you do want? I'll go off and do 10 of what you do want. I'll do everything I can to get it right, but I would love a little bit more clarity. And so that was where I was coming from. And then when I became a new boss, I found, I felt badly when I was like giving someone direction or changing something that they had done. And I remember really distinctly, I over 
stepped and said to this girl who was working on something that I'd asked her to do, I'm like, oh, well, I'll stay and help you do it. And by staying and helping her do it, I made her feel like she couldn't do it herself. And that actually didn't work. She felt like sort of diminished by me saying, oh, I'll stay and help you because she felt like it meant I didn't trust her judgment and couldn't do it. And I was like, that never occurred to me. And she sat me down and told me that. And I was like, thank you. Good feedback. I'm really happy that you told me that. And there's been moments like that in my career where people have like given me real feedback and said, Hey, this doesn't work. And I've tried really hard to listen to that. And the same thing. It's like when I've given someone feedback and said, I don't like that, or I don't think that works. And I don't say what does work or here's what I think is working. This is helpful. It's easier to hear when you say to somebody, I don't think that's working but you don't say, here's the two things I think are working, or you're not specific about why it's not working. It just leaves people feeling just like they just kind of disintegrate. They're not, it's not going to motivate them to go back to their desk and work harder. They're just going to be like, fuck that, you know? And so I've had a lot of training by people that have worked for me. Yeah. So I think it's really important and being approachable enough for someone to come to you and say, Hey, can we talk? That doesn't feel good. It doesn't work. I need different guidance. That's a huge part of growth. And as you said, like, there's no training, there's no school. No one teaches you. You kind of learn it by trial and error. And I made a lot of errors. That's for sure. And, but when you're doing that, even on reality TV, I guess it's sort of like on the border of reality and docu-series. Yeah, we try. But were you ever asked, to, like, do you have to like turn it up? Like, you know, turn up the drama, like really get in there, like really rip him apart. For this. Let's do one more take, Jenna, but we're going to really just like give it, just yeah, rip it off. Definitely. It was the hardest part of the process. We set out to make a show that was a combination of reality and documentary. And I said, I don't want to be a reality star in the way that reality is currently exhibited. I'm not that person. I can't do it. And I don't want to make people cry. Oh my God. Have you, by the way, ever been approached to be on The Real Housewives of New York City? No, there is nothing about me that would, I mean, I'm gay and I don't have big boobs. And like- that sounds like a great storyline to me. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I mean, there were Carol Radish, Will, like there were, you know, Carol's there were, I love Carol. I, I feel like, I feel like, Carol, she's my favorite. I feel like Andy like would have at least tried. I love Andy. Can we just talk about Andy and Anderson? Um, did you watch the ball drop? Did you watch Oh my God, that? they were so I, drunk. I was dying. It was the sweetest thing I've ever seen. Anderson Cooper like giggling in the back. I mean, I died. Every time they took another shot, I'm like, I just miss Kathy. I, it made me miss Kathy Griffin a little bit, though. Oh, I do. I love Kathy. Well, hold on, but sorry, you were you were saying about turning up the drama for reality TV. Yeah, and I think there was desire for that for sure. It was a conversation that was had. I had it at the very beginning when we started, and I was also uh, an executive producer on the show, and it was my name, so it wasn't like I was stepping into a project that was pre-existing, like a uh, Housewives or Project Runway, where there was a tone that was already set. It was my job and my responsibility to myself to set the tone and to say, like, that's not okay with me. I wouldn't do that. I would never say that. There was that. And I will say the network and the team were amazing. But, you know, we had some backdoor moments of like, nope, can't do that. I won't say that. You know, well, tell her why you really feel. And I'm like, (laughs) that is how I really feel. (laughs) I don't know. It was, yeah, there were definitely some moments. I probably cried more than anybody else. Really? Oh, yeah. It's hard. I'd never done it before. And I didn't want to make a fool of myself. I was protective of myself and the people, you know, they're making a television show, they have a job to do. And in real time with a camera rolling on you, being able to navigate what you don't see is behind the scenes or someone throwing a line at you and say like, well, ask them why they thought of doing that or why they thought that was a good idea. And I'm like, okay, if I answer that or say that the way you just said it, I'm going to seem so how do I say that in my own words, that respects the person 
and gets the message across. It's a lot of pressure. You're doing that while the camera is rolling and you're exhausted. You've been up since six. You don't get a lot of breaks. You have a mic strapped to you at all times. It's real and it is exhausting. And we were working 12, 14 hour days and you're just on the entire time. And I have to take ownership. Oh yeah, I cried a lot. But you would do a season two if it gets picked up again. I mean, what? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> yes. I mean, maybe. I don't know. It wasn't would, traumatic enough for you to say, I'm never doing that again. It was not traumatic enough. No, definitely not. I mean, I'm, I want to, I think. I don't know if I'd do it exactly the same way. Jenna, thank you so much for chatting oh, with us. Thank you. It was fun. You guys were awesome. This is so fun. Mm-hmm. And people can find you on Instagram since the year 2020. You joined. There I am. And don't feel bad if I don't DM you back. <laughs> You are at Jenna Lyons NYC. Yeah. And Love Scene are your lashes. Yeah. And then the show is at Stylish. Oh, wait, is the show at H? Uh oh. It doesn't have an Instagram. Oh, the show doesn't. <laughs> we can Google it. You can it find it on HBO. <laughs> we can yeah. add this in later. <laughs> or you yeah. can just watch it on HBO Max. There you go. This is our first reader generated product of the week. This comes from Natalie Light who has combination skin with hormonal acne on her chin at times. And she says, Hello, my product of the week comes from Renee Rouleau. I listened to her on the Glowing Up podcast and asked my husband for some of her products for Christmas. The anti-bump solution, formerly named the anti-cyst treatment from Renee Rouleau, is pretty impressive. I dab a tiny bit on spots as my last step of my routine. It's super potent and actually seemed to work overnight. And she said that she actually works for a different cosmetics brand. So this is definitely not a plug. She's just really obsessed with this product. Renee Rouleau is a facialist in LA. And you can buy this anti-bump solution for $49.50 on ReneeRouleau.com. Thank you so much, Natalie. That was our first ever reader-submitted product of the week. And I love it. I love the fact that she also works for a different skincare cosmetics brand, so she has no skin in this game. This is like, she just loves this product. She also loves it because... Well, she does have skin and... (laughs) She does have skin in the game, but the good kind of skin. She got it from the Glowing Up podcast, Our Friends in Podding. We love it. So remember to write us at hi at eyewitnessbeauty.com with product of the week in the subject line or DM us at eyewitnessbeauty and send us your product of the week. Nick, what's your product of the week? So my product of the week is something I stole from my husband. It is Holly Frog's Sunapee Sacred Sea Brightening Powder Wash. I notoriously love anything that says brightening, so they had me at brightening. But this is basically a powder. It's like a clay powder that you can either mix with a little bit of water or you can add into like a gel cleanser. And it creates kind of a paste, a little bit of like a scrub hybrid, but not a rough scrub. And you use it as a face wash. It has vitamin C, so it brightens and tingles a tiny, tiny bit. But it's more just like a really clean feeling. I'm obsessed with it. I like love vitamin C. You love a powdery vitamin C. The actually the most amazing powder vitamin C, but you wouldn't want to use it in a face wash is the new company's powdered vitamin C. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that I mix in with my moisturizer, but this, the Holly Frog Sacred C, I would just add into my face wash for an extra little bump of brightening. An extra little bump. 
Yeah. Question, how much does it cost? Where do you buy Holy Frog? Great question. The Sunapee Sacred Sea Brightening Powder Wash is available on hollyfrog.com. It's 44 bucks for 2.5 ounces. It'll last you quite a while because you only need like a little puff of it. And it's even it works for sensitive skin. Mine's pretty sensitive. Casey's is less so. I love it. Holly Frog is all about face wash. So like it's all just different ways to wash your face for all different occasions. And this is... It's like a really fun, definitely for daily use, but it's a little bit of buffing. It's a little bit of brightening. Altogether phenomenal. Amazing. I didn't know that you were doing a face wash. I too am doing a face wash. Yay. But mine is very different. So my skin is so sensitive in the winter. I don't drink enough water during the day. I have all these stupid radiators in my office that dry out the air. And my skin has been so sensitive to the point where my favorite products have been making it sting and turn red, which is very different for me. And so on a whim, I bought the Cetaphil Pro Dry Skin Wash. It's like a soothing, I think they're saying it's good for your body and your face. I just use it on my face. And it has the eczema seal at the bottom. So you know it's really gentle. And I wash my face with it every night. If I'm wearing a lot of makeup, I'll do an oil cleanser before. But if I'm wearing just a little bit of makeup or no makeup at all, I'll use the Cetaphil Pro Dry Skin Wash. And it does lather. It does sting if you get it in your eye. But everything else, it's incredible. It doesn't make my skin dry or flaky, which for a cleanser is V-rare, as you know. But like, what do you, when you say sting, if it, gets in your, if it gets in your eye, doesn't all face wash get in your eye? Yeah, but not all face wash stings when it gets in your eye. True. A lot of it, like, you know, especially makeup removing face washes, like, are really good for, you know, they formulate them so they are sensitive to your eyes because you'll be, like, rubbing them in to get off all your, like, eye makeup and mascara. But, yeah, so this one I don't use along my lash line, but I say try it. You know what? And it's a lot of product. You only needed, like, the tiniest, tiniest little bit because it lathers a ton. And it's great. 15 bucks. Probably for a ton. 15 bucks for 10 fluid ounces. So, yeah, that's... Very good. That's a that's a good choice. Mm -hmm. And so you can get it anywhere you can buy Cetaphil, I assume. Uh, I haven't seen the Pro line everywhere, so it is for special skin. So you know, you might have to look a little bit harder. Okay, that's it then for this week's episode of Eyewitness Beauty. Thank you, as always, so much for listening. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts. Only five stars. And uh, you can follow us on Instagram at eyewitnessbeauty. You can write to us at hi at eyewitnessbeauty.com. And uh, what am I forgetting to say, Nick? That's it. Eyewitness Beauty is produced by Jessamine Molly of Seaplane Armada. Our art is by Simon Abronowitz, and our theme music is by Danny Prezant. Research assistance is provided by Alicia Bansall. We'll be back next week with another brand new episode, so we will talk with you then. Ciao for now. Later, Gators. Gators.